This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, reporter Nick Crastle provides an update on a months awaited ruling on mental health at the David Wade Correctional Center in Homer, Louisiana. Prisoners there sued the state in an attempt to improve conditions and mental health care at the facility. And reporter Terry Jones from Floodlight joins us to talk about the thousands of abandoned wellheads throughout the country, including in Louisiana, and what one nonprofit is doing to try to seal them off. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Hey, Kellen. Terry Jones from Floodlight is here. Hi, Terry. Hey. Thanks for joining us. And Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Nick, first up with you in criminal justice, a Western District of Louisiana judge has found mental health care and conditions at David Wade Correctional Center inhumane. The ruling issued Tuesday night came after a four-week trial that was held at the beginning of the year. Plaintiffs in the class action lawsuit said that prisoners with mental illness housed at David Wade were frequently placed in lockdown for minor violations of prison rules and held in their cells for over 23 hours a day, exacerbating their mental illnesses and causing severe psychological harm. Tell us about the conditions that led to the lawsuit that were described in in the court case. Sure. So you may remember we discussed this uh, earlier this year when the when the trial was actually taking place in January. Um, but the the lawsuit is related to conditions at, at David Wade Correctional Center, which is a, a prison in North Louisiana, and it houses about a, a thousand state prisoners and has has been used as sort of a disciplinary camp for the other state prisons. So if prisoners have, are found to have broken rules or um, had infractions at other prisons, sometimes they'll get sent to David Wade as, as a punishment. And, um, you know, the result of that is that about half the prisoners at David Wade are being held in uh, what, what's known as extended lockdown or, you know, solitary confinement, um, where they're held in their cells for as long as 24 hours a day. Um, so that's what this lawsuit is about. It's... Um, one about the conditions of extended lockdown at David Wade and the impacts of that on people's mental health, and then about the actual mental health care that um, is, is provided at the prison. And what the lawsuit claims is, is one is that the conditions at, at in extended lockdown exacerbate uh, people's mental health issues already, and in particular for people with mental illness, um, and that there's basically functionally no mental health care provided at the prison. So that's kind of the the very basic outline of, of what this lawsuit is alleging. Yeah, I remember when we discussed it, some pretty harrowing stories that um, I think there were witnesses, right? And, and they were describing really, really horrible conditions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, prisoners kind of testified about the impacts of the of the social isolation um, of being held in these cells for, for so long and... Um, described, you know, some abuse by guards. Extended lockdown in itself is a disciplinary um, procedure at at the prison, but even within extended lockdown, there's something uh, that's called strip cell status, and that can be utilized sort of whenever the prison staff feels like uh, someone in extended lockdown has has continued to break the rules, and they're stripped of all their clothing. Um, Mm. They're put into a, a paper gown, and their mattress is taken out of their cells. Um, so they have no property, no mattress, 
um, and, and no clothing, um, and they're, they're held in their cells. And they're supposed to get their mattress back in the evening from, from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. to sleep on, but uh, several prisoners testified that, that oftentimes that didn't happen, so they're forced to sleep on, you know, a, on a concrete cell or on a, a, a metal, um, you know, spring. So, yeah, really, really sort of hor horrible conditions that were described. And, you know, some of what this trial was about was kind of determining credibility of, of these uh, prisoners and and whether or not they were telling the truth versus the prison staff. And, you know, what we what we saw in this ruling was that the judge really did find these these allegations credible and found the expert witnesses for the plaintiffs who, who went and toured the prison to be to be credible. As mm. well. And she just released the, the judge in the case just released her ruling this week. Can you tell us about what what it said? Yeah, so Judge Foote, who is a, a federal judge in the Western District of Louisiana, found that the conditions were were inhumane. Um, she found that the policies that were in place exacerbated people's mental illness, um, caused severe psychological harm to people who were being held there. And she found that basically no aspect of the mental health care that was ostensibly being provided was was adequate. Mm. Um, so really um, sided with with the plaintiffs in that these conditions were causing people severe mental mental harm and then the prison was doing nothing to kind of ameliorate that. And part of this ruling, you know, she, she found the conditions unconstitutional and part of that finding had to do with the fact that the prison knew that this was taking place. Um, and the Department of Corrections knew that these conditions were, you know, unacceptable um, and amounted to, to, you know, mental torture in some cases, mm. but didn't do anything to to change them. So it was it was a pretty remarkable ruling. It was an extremely long ruling. It's 165 pages. Yeah, I was going to um, ask so, you about that. Not not being an attorney, I didn't. You you noted that the length of the ruling, and I didn't know if that meant it was particularly long or not. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I, I think, it, you know, this is a, a kind of a book length document hmm. on really detailing um, the ways in which the prison has failed to care for, for these people in, in its custody. Um, I think, yeah, it, it was quite remarkable. She used the word, like I said, mental torture several times, um, called strip cell status, which I just described, you know, that it was intended to inflict physical and mental torture on, on the people here uh, in, in custody. She found that they violated the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act too, correct? Yeah, that's right. So it was a, she found constitutional violation and then that they violated these federal statutes that, that are supposed to protect people with disabilities uh, by ensuring that institutions are are providing you know specific protections and accommodations for for people with with mental illness and and she found uh, that they they weren't doing that for many of the same reasons that that I just described that these conditions and the prison not taking into account mental illness when placing people in solitary confinement you know amounted to this federal violation that that really stuck out to me the Rehabilitation Act, because obviously with experience in education reporting, Section 504 of that act protects students with disabilities. Um, and especially from what it sounds like Judge Foote talked about a lot there was this, you know, 
if you're placing people in solitary confinement and that's having negative effects, you're just kind of perpetuating this cycle of, of, you know, what would be categorized as poor behavior or punishable behavior. And in schools for students, students with disabilities, um, that they have kind of a protection there where there's something called a manifestation determination review to see if their behavior was indeed caused by their disability or whatever, um, they, they might, you know, have an IEP for that just really resonated with me in this judgment and with this ruling from the judge, because if, if these punishments are perpetuating their behavior with no treatment and no services, I mean, there's just no end in sight there. Right. Yeah. And that was a point she made several times. And the ruling is that the, the mental health staff are not involved in the disciplinary proceedings frequently. So they're not involved when someone's being, you know, when, when the prison is determining whether or not to put someone in solitary confinement and they're not involved when they do these kind of regular reviews to see if they should be brought out of solitary confinement. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very much um, similar in, in that sense. And one of the issues that she found. So this, this ruling really was focused on whether or not there were abuses. Yes. But it sounds like she was including some potential remedies in the ruling though that's not the phase that we're in. Yeah, I mean, I think you can kind of imagine a lot of, based, based on her findings, what, what some of the solutions might be. Like I said, I mean, having more, ment- having more mental health care staff in general, I think is, is one of the big issues at the prison. Um, and I think that that's going to be a big, a big topic of conversation uh, during the remedy phase. So, so like I said, you can kind of imagine some of the the remedies, but she didn't lay out in any specific detail, you know, what she believes needs to be done to make sure that the prisoners are starting to get adequate mental health care um, or that they aren't being, you know, thrown in solitary confinement for uh, for extended periods of time. Like you said, a whole separate phase of the trial is going to focus on that, and that will be in January. Um, and that will kind of one, determine whether or not these conditions still exist in the prison. Um, The cutoff date for the first phase of the trial was uh, March of 2020. So what I think we'll see is the prison is going to say, well, you know, we've we've already changed a lot lot of what what we're doing, and we've started to address some of these issues based on conversations that I've had, you know, since the ruling with, with attorneys for disability rights, which is the organization that brought the lawsuit, I don't think they believe that that much has changed mm. um, since uh, since they brought the case. So it'll be interesting. So you said in January there's the next phase, which is the remedial phase, remediation? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Did this ruling open the door for possible civil or personal cases against the prison by some of the prisoners? You know, that's... I don't know. I don't think that that is kind of what the goal of this was. You know, they didn't ask for any monetary damages or uh, compensation. Um, they asked for injunctive relief, which means they, you know, are looking to get the policies and the practices within the prison changed. I think, you know, any sort of individual lawsuits that that prisoners might bring, I think, would probably be separate from this. I don't know what degree this ruling would would have an impact on those potential cases. Mm, Okay. 
All right. Um, thanks, Nick. Thanks, John. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, reporter Terry Jones from Floodlight, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. As a reader of The Lens, you already know that we prioritize truth over profits. Our reporters work tirelessly to produce public service journalism that you can trust because you deserve to have a go-to source for the news that matters most to you. From now through the end of the year, Newsmatch and the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation will match your donation up to $1,000 per individual. We can earn up to $15,000 in matching donations, which means the lens can raise $30,000 or more in total. Give today at thelensnola.org and help sustain your trusted source of news. Thank you and happy holidays. Terry Jones is a reporter with Floodlight. Terry, there are thousands of abandoned wellheads throughout the country, including in Louisiana, and it can cost tens of thousands of dollars to properly seal them after oil and gas operations have ceased. You talked to one nonprofit that's aiming to seal them through a market-driven approach. Tell us about the background of this story. How did you hear about these, and, and what did you find? Well, first, let's, let's start by saying that actually there are millions. Ooh. Uh, I think there could be like a million or more abandoned wells in the country um, at about more, a little more than 4,600 in Louisiana alone. Mm. Um, and so I think that, you know, for us, this kind of started because we had kind of ran across a press release that was announcing that Tito's Vaca, uh, the company, was involved in plugging an oil and gas well in Louisiana. And we were like, why is Tito's involved in this? And, mm. you know, as you start doing a little bit more digging, I ran across the Well Done Foundation. And then you just really started to dive into this whole topic and realize how big of a problem this was. And what was really interesting to me about all of this was because, you know, I have a lot of family back in uh, Woodville, Mississippi, and I can remember going to visit them. And, and when I started to see pictures of what these look like, I was like, I remember seeing this on like my family's property hmm. and thinking nothing of it and just thinking, oh, this is there. And the people just kind of just like nudging it off like, well, these are everywhere. We don't really worry about this. And I'm just like, wait a minute. So these things were highly dangerous highly flammable and we're just playing around them as kids right. you know and so you know that kind of really sparked my interest in a lot of this and wanting to kind of dig into this and kind of see why this happened and who was trying to be involved in doing the work of of trying to plug these and kind of correct this issue which really and truly i just went in assuming that this was oil and gas just leaving this behind and not caring about it and obviously i was right no. <laughs> <laughs> so but for those who haven't read the story i encourage everyone to read the story on our website thelensnola.org but tell us about what what they are there's a great picture on you know the the headline picture the photo right above the story what are they? Why are they there? And what are they releasing into the into the atmosphere? So usually they'll look like these rustic metal holes in the ground. Sometimes there will be nothing on them. The one in the picture in the article, it was just like an, a, a, a hole. You just look down in like a well, like a small well. Um, and sometimes they can be, you know, a little bit above ground, like kind of like a raised uh, sewer. Mm. Kind of they'll be raised, but sometimes they maybe have something over them. 
but they're really and truly not really sealed in any kind of way. And what can happen is they can, over time, leak methane gas. They can go into groundwater, obviously, if they're not properly sealed. And kind of how this problem happens is because, you know, the, a lot of these wells are what they call legacy wells, meaning that they have been there for years. Uh, they were maybe drilled way before oil and gas had any industry or any regulations. So that's kind of how they are there. They just, you know, after they drill a well, the well goes dry, stops producing oil, and then the oil company just leaves it there. And like before, I think the 1950s, there really wasn't any kind of regulations that forced the company to seal them. And so then when the regulations did come, a lot of companies would use bankruptcy as a way to kind of get out of having mm. to decommission these things because they are very expensive. And so that's kind of where the problem kind of metastasized from. I think, and I say metastasized because it is like a cancer. But, you know, I think what was really interesting to me was the leader and the founder of the Well Done Foundation and even this other uh, nonprofit that's trying to do this work. A lot of the people that are doing this are people who were in the oil and gas industry. And just like I said in the article, he didn't even know that this was an issue. And he had been in the oil and gas industry for 35 years. He said he was just as shocked to find out that this was just left and no one was really taking care of this problem. And that he said it was so bad, he felt that he felt compelled to start the foundation, use some of his own money in the beginning to steal these because in the beginning it was very hard to get money people just wouldn't give for this it just wasn't a real issue to people it's just now starting to get traction and you're starting to see the federal dollars kind of trickle in to kind of deal with this and so you know obviously going back to your original question about you know what they're leaking and, and the damage could cause well one obviously you know some of these gases are highly flammable someone strike a match or smoke around them it could lead to an explosion. I think that maybe there was one reported incident of that happening. I can't be 100% sure. But a lot of times, these gases leak into the atmosphere. And obviously, this, these are greenhouse emissions. And they trap the heat onto the earth. And it's not a great, a great friend of climate, you know, for right. climate. So, you know, you kind of get, this is a contributing factor to so many other things. Uh, to our climate uh, issues here. And it's not, your story, I think, outlines the process. It's not just putting, a, a for example, as the picture shows and the, the sort of sewer pipe that you're describing, it's not just a matter of literally capping it. It's a, it's a bit more detailed than that. You explain that it, it's several <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars. Can you explain what how, how yes. you do it? Well, yeah. So basically for the process of doing this, to decommission them, it's really like a, it's a multi-step process. At first, you must access the wells, you know, uh, condition. You got to do a lot of underground shelling and casing with cement. It has to be cement in order, and it has to be properly sealed, meaning you have to survey it enough to make sure that there aren't any leaks within the line, hmm. to make sure you can seal everything properly. And then, you know, obviously, if there are anything above ground that you need to take care of, you need to do that as well. The cost of this, I mean, it can range. Honestly, that's one of the things that is kind of super interesting. It can be as low as, let's say, maybe $2,000 $2, per well. And it can also be as high as $65,000. Mm. It just depends on the damage, the condition of the well. Um, and so it can get very expensive. And what a lot of companies would do you know, one of the processes was they would maybe in the beginning of 
you know, the drilling process, they would take out bonds uh, that would say, well, you know, when, we, when we're done here, we're going to fill it back up. This is the money to ensure that we're going to do this. But guess what? When it's all said and done, that's not enough money to do it. You mentioned a minute ago federal dollars coming in. How does that work? And do the foundations utilize that? Foundations and nonprofits that I talked to, they said they weren't taking federal grant money to do their work. But a lot of them didn't want to do it because they of all the federal red tape that's attached to those dollars. And so, you know, a lot of them, like you said, taking the market-based approach, trying to get big companies like Amazon and the Walmarts and Tito's Vodka to do it and trying to entice them by using carbon credits to do that work. So tell us about this this one company, the nonprofit that you learned about. Well done. Clever name. Are they yeah. relying on um, uh, philanthropy? Uh, yeah, so this guy, uh, he actually was the founder. His name is Chuck Schultz. He was retired when he started the company, uh, but he was kind of doing some consulting work. He was in Montana uh, visiting farmers there. Uh, I think to do some consultation work in, in regards to how to get product to the market or something. And that's when he ran across the first well and asked the former he was talking to, hey, what's that? It was in the, of a, in the middle of a wheat field. So, okay, one of these were in the middle of a wheat field that's going to consumer. Uh, and he was like, what is this? And the guy said, oh, this is just a well. We have them everywhere. And he said that on the ride home, he started the foundation, called his wife, started the 501c3 filing. Um, and then used about a little bit more than $50,000 or maybe a little bit more than that of his, his savings to kind of do the first well. Mm. And from that, they have gotten uh, sponsorships. One, of course, for Tito's Vodka. I think the actor Jason Priestley from 90210 has been involved in a lot of their work. And he said he's starting now to see a little bit more money come through. They'll get a lot of private companies to maybe adopt wells. And then that's the way they'll pay for a single well to get plugged. I think Tito's did about four in Louisiana, in Cato Parish. Um, and they have a couple of more that they're going to do here. They've done some in Oklahoma, Montana, Louisiana, and I think maybe one more, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. Hmm. So their work is kind of just beginning. This company started in 2019, um, and they've only done about 22 so far. And I say only, I mean, that's a lot, but... Uh, Given how many they are, 22 of them is like a pebble in the pond, you know, in the CEO of this issue. Right, right. So that's being done to address the abandoned wells. Can you talk a little bit about the legislation now in place to prevent these from happening again or in the future or not? Well, it's, there, there, are more, there are regulations, but it doesn't guarantee anything because oh. we still have abandoned wells happening. You know, as long as oil companies know how to get through loopholes, there is allowed to keep taking place. You know, even when I spoke with the Louisiana Oil and Gas Association, you know, they said, well, we have this fund that, you know, oil and gas companies kind of feed into to kind of address this issue. But still, he said, well, but we don't have enough money to really fix the ones in Louisiana. So let's wait for the federal government to kind of help us deal with this. Um, and then even with the federal money that's coming in, Louisiana is on tap to receive about 20 million, 25 million actually of that money. And I think that's for about 900 abandoned wells in the state that have been tagged high priority, which means they're probably, you know, maybe leaking or in the danger of leaking pretty soon. Um, it's one of those things that you have to have a company apply for that money. 
And even one of the foundations that I talked to in Oklahoma in the article, he said that a lot of companies there, when they got federal funding, they just didn't apply for it. It took, it took years for that money to trickle down because a lot of companies didn't want to deal with the federal red tape. And so you maybe only got one or maybe two or four that kind of did this work, and it just takes years and mm. years to get it corrected. And, I mean, these things can pop up in a backyard. They can pop up at a playground. Right. They're just like anywhere. All right. Terry, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Marta, what's happening on the education beat right now? New Orleans Public Schools uh, common application for students is going to open up on Monday. That'll be November 7th. So parents can get ready to fill out that application and then wait those couple months uh, to find out where their student gets in the annual process that we know of. Um, but I just wanted to note that for parents and families out there that you'll be able to do that uh, starting Monday, November 7th. Okay, right after the um, the clocks change, yeah? Right after the clocks change and the day before the election. So yeah, it's gonna be a busy it's a, week. <laughs> it's a busy week. All right, well, uh, all of you, thank you so much for your time and have a good week. Thanks, guys. See you later. All right. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, floodlight reporter Terry Jones, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.